This is an ultimate global podcast. Hello, and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney. So welcome to another exciting episode of Ultimate Global Podcast. And today we are talking about an interesting this topic uh, related to startups, a lot of startups are concerned about this fact that what will happen if somebody invests in our company and how and what are they thinking? What is an investor thinking when they invest in a company or why don't they invest in some companies and why do they invest in some other companies? So I have got uh, Max with me. He's uh, originally from Australia, but he's joining me today from Amsterdam. And he's the founder of Ultraviolet Ventures. He's also a venture capitalist investment uh, at GGV Capital, which has invested in 80 plus unicorns. So no better than him to ask this question and explore more about how the investors think. We always think about in the sales process, how is our customer thinking? And one of the key stakeholders, especially for early stage founders and early stage startups is the venture capitalist or the investor who can help them get those initial funds that they can invest in their teams, that they can invest in technologies and setting up those initial things that they require for their startup. So, Mark, starting from you with this question itself that what do investors really look for in startups? Uh, The simple answer is a company that can become a $10 billion company or a $100 billion company then the question is, okay, what are the early indicators that might suggest whether a company can get that big? The first thing I'll say is that the venture capitalist isn't underwriting the probability of success. In other words, the VC isn't asking about what are the chances this will succeed. Instead, the VC is asking about if this does succeed, how big can it be? So I think the the first question a VC has to ask is, is the, if this does succeed, how big can it be? So that question turns on the idea. It turns on the market itself. The market is crucially important. And it turns on probably most importantly, the founder, right? Because good, and found, good founders iterate on the idea and they iterate on the market. Um, you can change your market. You can change your idea. You can't change your founder. So let's say now we have a good founder, a good market and a good idea right? What do VCs then look for next? And the way I kind of think about it um, is the VCs go through a process of risk elimination. So each business, each startup has risks inherent to it. Um, one example would be market adoption risk. That's that the market adoption risk is do people actually want this product? So Uber in the early days or Airbnb in the early days face market adoption risk. Did customers actually care? Another risk might be execution risk. Can the founder and team execute really damn well? And some companies that face execution risk in Australia might be, I don't know, maybe Milk Run or Eucalyptus or companies that already exist overseas. And now the overseas model is coming to the local markets. So so that's execution risk. And there are all these other risks. There's, um, you might have platform risk or financing risk, et cetera. And typically, once the VC is comfortable on the founder in the market, there'll be one or two risks that are particularly live for this specific business. And it's the 
founder's job to help the VCs build conviction that those risks are surmountable and therefore the company is investable and therefore the company has a chance of becoming a $10 million company. I think there are a lot of interesting points that you've just raised, Max, with regards to the execution of the plans and the strategies. Now, this is something which you can't evaluate as a venture capitalist when you are initially investing in someone's company because you might be having some underlying assumptions that because they have this value proposition or because they're going into sustainability, which is kind of a very fancy theme these days, um, and their idea is really unique, I might invest in that idea. But how do you really evaluate with, the, with respect to the execution risks that you just talked about as to whether I should invest here or I should not invest here? Yes. So let's, uh, I'll be clear on like the execution risks. So some businesses, the live risk isn't, can this company execute? For some businesses, um, for example, Uber and Airbnb, the live question is, do people actually care about this, right? But let's say we move to the cohort of businesses where the live question is, can the founder execute? For those businesses, there are a few ways I try to build comfort or have conviction on whether the founder can execute. The easiest way is looking for past founders, multiple time founders, right? So if a business is going head to head with execution risk, then you ideally want multiple time founders or experienced operators, which typically means people who have held senior roles at startups. So that's the first way you can build conviction and execution risks. The second way is looking for traction. There's this saying in VC land that your product is your resume um, or your traction is your resume. And when you have, say, a first-time founder or an early founder confronting execution risk, one way you can become comfortable with the founder's ability to take on that risk is looking at their progress so far, their traction. So I think there are two ways in particular that VCs can become comfortable on whether this founder and this team is the one to execute. I think uh, one of the things that you have just raised is the kind of experience those people are having. Um, but another thing can also be to look at their business canvas model and the different elements that they are presenting to you because a lot of these uh, venture capitalists also raise funds through different events that keep on um, getting organized in different parts of the world. So do you also look at the different elements of the business canvas model? And if so, what is the most important element out of all those? Because there are so many elements into it like cost, revenue, marketing, key value proposition, key activities. There are so many things into that. So maybe some of the startup founders might be listening to you now and they would want to know what should I focus more on so that I can get my initial funding? So explicitly, I don't know any VCs who will look at the business model canvas. Implicitly, there are parts of the business model canvas that VCs might look at without realizing that they're part of the business model canvas. When VCs talk of the question of business model, what they're typically asking is, is this a B2B business model? Is this a consumer business model? Is this a, I don't know, deep tech business model? Because all those business models have different implications for the way um, costs are structured, revenue is structured, the number of customers you need, et cetera. So I'll give one example. 
Um, let's say we're considering B2B businesses versus B2C businesses. On average, B2B businesses have a lot more attractive, are a lot more attractive. And the reason why is their margins tend to be higher. Their average revenue per user tends to be a lot higher, which means you need fewer users. B2B businesses tend to have customers who expand the amount they spend. So there's this, there's this term called net revenue expansion. And basically what this means is let's say we take one customer. If that customer spends $1 this year and they spend $1.50 next year, that means they have 150% net revenue expansion. So you can look at a company like Snowflake. Snowflake has 160 odd percent net revenue expansion, which means that every year, if Snowflake doesn't get a single new customer, Snowflake's revenue still grows by 60%, right? So you can grow by 60% without getting a single new customer. And that's the power of a B2B business model. B2B business models also tend to have lower churn. And the combination of all these factors, right? High average revenue per customer, net revenue expansion, lower churn, combination of all these factors means that B2B business models tend to have better unit economics. So that's one example of how VCs will think about business model. Now, to your question on the business model canvas, do VCs think about it? Explicitly, no. Implicitly, yes. So let's say you start cost structure bottom left. I think the, the model of venture capital is that you're expected to have costs that exceed your revenue. Um, sorry. Yeah, costs that exceed your revenue in the short term. And this is deliberate because VCs want these companies to grow very quickly. And one way to grow very quickly is to spend more money typically on R&D, on, um, on employees, or on sales and marketing. So a break even, let's say a business, a startup starts today, often VCs won't expect that startup to become profitable for call it four to seven years time. And that's completely acceptable. That number, that that profitability um, timeline, break-even timeline can even be as long as 10 years or 20 years. Amazon's core business, Amazon's like marketplace business, only recently started breaking even. And even then, um, Amazon's core business doesn't actually make a lot of money. And that's fine. People are very comfortable with Amazon continuing to invest into growth. There are other parts of this business model canvas, that I think VCs do kind of think about implicitly. So channels, right? What channels kind of implies is distribution. And distribution means how is this company getting their product into the world? And if you have a distribution edge, that distribution edge can be really powerful for a startup. Um, I'll give you an example of a distribution edge. So Microsoft has a distribution edge because Microsoft's products already exist within most corporate businesses. So we saw this with Zoom versus Teams. Zoom was a better product. Zoom was launched earlier, but Microsoft was still able to start growing Teams at a faster rate because Microsoft had this distribution advantage. Um, I could comment on the other parts of this canvas, but I know I've been speaking for a while, so I'll pass back to you. Yeah, uh, pretty interesting points raised again, uh, Max, when you shared this example of Teams and Zoom. 
And I also see that there is uh, some sort of advantage that big brands can get if, even if they are launching a new product because those brands are already existing in the market such as Microsoft has been there for so long. And that is why probably they were able to make use of that brand and the distribution channel, as you said, that was already existing in the market. I would also like to know from you because you might have gone through different experiences where startups were successful in raising funds and then startups which kind of were having a great idea, but they were not successful in raising funds. So would you like to share any such examples in the recent past where you have encountered such founders who came to you and they had brilliant ideas, they did everything to get the funds, but were unsuccessful in doing that. And then probably another example where um, a startup came to you and they might not have a great pitch, but the way they uh, implemented or the way they showed your idea, showed you their idea, um, you were impressed and uh, you really wanted that, you know, what the VCs wanted that we want to invest in this company. So I think the most, the, the key factor that distinguishes whether a startup can raise versus whether a startup can't is the scale of their ambition or the scale of potential of a business. It goes back to what I said at the start, the VCs aren't asking what's the probability of success. Instead, VCs are asking if this does succeed, how big can it be? So the startups that don't tend to raise might have good founders. They might have a good idea. But the market is so small that even if they execute perfectly, the company can only become a $100 million company. Those companies I call small businesses instead of startups. The startups that often do succeed, even with an idea that seems kind of stupid or crazy, is a startup where, okay, in the, the base cases that they fail, but if they do succeed, this company can become a $10 billion company. So the scale of ambition slash magnitude of success in the success case, I think that's the, the number one differentiating factor. I think the number two differentiating factor at the early stage of investing is founders. Um, VCs prim at the earlier stage are primarily backing founders. And that's because you can iterate on the idea, you can iterate on the market, you can't iterate on the founder. Um, so then the question is, okay, what about founders determines who can raise and who can't raise. And my favorite articulation of it is uh, a found a wildly ambitious founder with a moonshot idea that can massively succeed, but it's the founder's job to articulate how they're going to succeed really, really clearly. So you can't just have a massive idea with no actual clarity of insight. Instead, you want the massive idea and you want a clarity of insight or a clarity of um, a clarity of the product roadmap commensurate to the size of that idea. So I think the founders that are able to raise and the founders that come across really well show they have really deep insight into this problem space. Mark Andreessen, he's the um, probably one of the most famous venture capitalists in the world, founder of A16Z, founder of the first web browser. He has this idea of the idea maze. Um, it was actually created originally by Bology Srinivasan, who works for Mark. Um, and the idea maze is the idea that every startup, every founder is going through a maze. And at, in this maze, there are certain junctures, right? And at each juncture, you need to know which way you're going to move in the maze. And the best founders know ahead of time what those junctures are going to be. 
and which way they're going to move when they get to those junctures. So as a VC, the way of assessing that is you pose to the founders questions about those junctures and you see how the founder responds. And the best founders, um, as, as you ask more sophisticated questions, the founders have more sophisticated and complex answers. So I think that's a really useful way of assessing founders, particularly unproven founders, founders who haven't done it before. The idea maze is a useful way of doing that. Yeah, that's that's really good. Uh, I also keep on hearing a lot of uh, startups and founders asking this question that what should we out, outsource and what should we keep in house? And what's the right time for us to decide that Okay, so we have earned enough sales now, and probably this is the right time for us to reach out to the venture capitalists. So I think these are two really important questions uh, which startup founders always have, that what's the right time that I should talk to people? And what are the skills that I should outsource? Like, uh, you know, skills like networking and relationship building. Um, I feel that it's very important for any founder to have that. Because if you are good in networking, if you are good in building relationships, if it comes naturally to you, then you can always reach out to people initially, uh, not only for raising funds, but also for getting more business early on so that we don't have to outsource that part, isn't it? I, I think um, in terms of the fundraising process, in the early stages, you shouldn't outsource everything. The you shouldn't outsource anything. Founders should have control over the the deck founders should have control over the pitch founders should have control over the relationships with the investors as you move to a slightly later stage let's say you want to ipo at that stage you're going to outsource basically the entire ipo prospectus you're going to outsource most of the fundraise etc and the reason why is that a lot more specific domain expertise is required to fundraise at the later stage than it is at the earlier stage so fundamentally, I think the question of whether or not to outsource is it's one of time, right? Is this a worthwhile use of the founder's time? Early on it is because the time commitment is lower um, and the, the value gained by doing it in-house is greater. Later on, the time commitment is higher and the value gained by doing in-house is lower. Um, so that's, that's in terms of outsourcing around like fundraising. There's also the question of outsourcing in terms of um, actual business functions and product. And frankly, I don't have a good answer for that. I think it's personal to each startup and to each scenario. Um, typically, I'll see startups outsource things which aren't their core competency. Like, it's not the startup's job to build um, their own Stripe in-house, right? And that's why a lot of those a lot of those functions like Stripe exist, which in a way is a form of outsourcing. What I've seen frequently um, is is startups that are building engineering teams and outsourcing part of the engineering work to overseas i think that could can be good to build an mvp i think that doesn't necessarily scale one because the quality of overseas engineers developing market engineers tend to be a little bit lower two because you don't have as, as tight cultural control over the organization when you're outsourcing a fundamental part of your product and three as you scale you want to actually retain those engineers or you want to retain the team because they have a very good feel for the code they've written, um, et cetera. So look, there are lots of different considerations with outsourcing. I think for the fundraiser, it goes back to what I said at the start. 
for actual core business functions and product, I think it has to be taken on like a case by case basis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very, very interesting points raised throughout the episode by you, Max. Um, I'm sure that it was really insightful for who, whoever you know is going to listen to this episode. But before we end today's uh, podcast episode, would you love to highlight on any top two or three takeaways from this session that we have had in the last 20 minutes uh, for the new founders? One would be to have no cap on the ambition of your idea. Um, ambitious ideas are more likely to succeed. Um, one, because you can attract a, lot, a stronger team around the mission. Two, because it helps you fundraise. Three, because in a way you manifest success. If you think about how do I do something big, it forces you to change the steps to get there. So that's my first takeaway. Don't have a cap on the level of your ambition. My second takeaway would be make sure that your clarity of insight, your far-sightedness of the future is commensurate with the size of that ambition, right? There's no point saying I want to build a $100 billion business if you don't have very structured, lucid steps about how you might get there. So that would probably be my second takeaway. Um, my third takeaway would be to consider all the different variables that I mentioned, right? So we add those variables of a B2B versus B2C business. We add that consideration of distribution. Um, there, there we add the the concept of I of risk reduction. Um, if you're an execution risk business versus a market adoption risk business versus something else. Something that I think is really useful for you to get a sense of what risks the VCs see as most live in your particular business is at the end of every VC call, ask them, are there any top of mind thoughts or are there any feedback? Do you have any feedback? Is there anything that might be holding you back? If you ask that to VCs at the end of the conversation, often they will open up with the key risk in their mind. And over time, as, an, as a founder, you'll get a sense of, what um, risks the VCs are considering. So they would be my top three takeaways. One, ambition. Two, clarity of insight. And three, be very comfortable with all the variables and ask VCs for their thoughts so you can get to know which risks are the ones you need to surmount for your business. Thank you so much, Max, for clearly articulating those three points. And I think being ambitious is really important and also not to lose hope because a lot of the times you might just end up losing hope after not getting funds that you initially uh, aspired for. So probably being ambitious and also not losing hope uh, and keep on striving on your idea so that you can prove what you are uh, really selling is worth it. But anyways, thank you so much, Max. I really appreciate your time. And I look forward to seeing you in another new episode with a new topic. Um, and hopefully we can have more insightful conversations ahead. Thanks, Rab. Awesome to be here. Thanks for the episode. This is an ultimate global podcast. Hello, and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney. 